Mind wandering is defined as when we're not focused on what we're doing, when we're thinking about something else other than a present time task. So right now you're sitting here listening uh, at a Buddhist center. If your mind was thinking about tomorrow or something that happened earlier in the day, then your mind would be wandering. But if you're thinking about what I'm saying, or how weird I'm looking, or whatever, that would not be mind-wandering, because you're thinking about a present-time uh, task that you're engaged in. So thinking about stuff around you isn't mind-wandering. Mind-wandering is when we go into uh, what's called representational thought, when we're no longer in reality, we're uh, representing the world in our mind, and I'm putting my hand up here because it's actually the left hemisphere that does that. Um, and there was an amazing study that was done by two great psychologists, uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert at Harvard, and they did a, a famous study called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, one of the more lucidly titled clinical research papers. Um, it was of now 5,000 people in 83 different countries, so it's pretty much uh, the largest clinical research that I've ever heard of. Um, and they found, they what they did is they literally got people, programmers in Cupertino to build an app that uh, would randomly, essentially ping uh, iPhone and other u phone users, smartphone users, and they would uh, answer essentially whether they were focused on what they were doing or not focused on what they were doing, what activities they were doing and whether they were, you know, happy or not, whether they felt uh, in a positive or negative or neutral mood. So they found out some, uh, some very interesting things. They find out that um, people are notice notably less happy, significantly less happy when their minds wander than when their minds are focused on what they're doing. They found out that we spend roughly 40% of our lives with our minds wandering in a state uh, in neuropsychology known as default mode network. It's called default mode network because we spend actually of all the different activities of mind, task positive, sleep, etc., we spend the most amount of our lives in that <coughs> mode, which is thinking about things that are not actually happening right now. So. Now, it's interesting, when people's minds wander, 42% of the time they go to pleasant topics, 27% to neutral, and 31 to worry. And yet, it doesn't matter whether you're thinking about something pleasant or unpleasant, you're still going to be unhappy. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? But they found that when people were daydreaming about uh, fantasies uh, and pleasant daydreams of success and wealth and love and romance and travel, they weren't happy. Interestingly enough, they found out that you and I are more likely to be happy if we're doing something that we don't like but we're focused on it than if we're doing something that we do like but we're not focused on it. Now let me say that again because this is, I think, a kind of almost mind-blowing, revolutionary idea. If you think about it, most of us uh, live our lives trying to avoid things that we don't like doing, and we tend to gravitate towards things that we do like doing. But actually, if we want to be happy, we'd be smarter off just simply saying, I want to be focused on what I'm doing, no matter what it is. To bear this out subjectively, not using a clinical study of 5,000 people, but to use a very recent anecdotal experience, when I was just at this retreat, uh, every day at 4 o'clock there was, um, because it was at a Korean um, Zen center, and uh, one of the tasks they asked the yogis to do, uh, every yogi has a, a kind of an assigned task, and one of the assigned tasks was at 4 o'clock, uh, peeling garlic. That was it, peeling garlic. Now, I can't believe that peeling garlic is most people's favorite activities in the world, and yet, 
when I would come in at 4 o'clock on a break before teaching, you know, the 4.30 or, or something, these people had the most ridiculously beatific smiles on their faces <laughs> because they had been prepped to be staying focused on what they were doing. And because we had given them a task, uh, rather than just sitting there and meditating where their minds could wander unless they had sustained practices, because we gave them a task, this was the happiest time I think a lot of them had in the retreat, just sitting there with the garlic, peeling it off with just these absolute, you know, maniacal grins on their faces. So the nature of the task is less important than whether we're focusing on it. That's a kind of a radical shift in the way most of us relate to our lives and our activities. So, um, this is not in a way surprising. When they look at what people are doing when their minds are wandering, we're activating the default mode network, and that activates certain areas of the brain, the left cingulate, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, and especially the amygdala, and that circuit is associated with me, what's going to happen to me, and stress. So when we are not present on what we're doing, eventually our thoughts, even pleasant thoughts, tend to resolve into speculation about self. And also, when we're not focused, when we're not in task-positive mode because we're not aware of the environment around us, we tend to go into an armored state because we're aware that we're not as um, attentive to uh, the right hemisphere and predators and the environment. So we go into this essentially armored protective state when we're not focused on what we're doing and that activates cortisol. So, um, mind wandering is associated uh, in a study by the University of Pennsylvania, nine different psychologists. It was published by the National Institute of Sciences and the study was called Default Mode Network and Self-Referential Processes in Depression Activation. Now there's your normal clinical study title if ever there was one, um, but you peer through it and what you get to the gist of it is, is that mind wandering is very often associated with emotion repression. So the more we tend to do it, the more we are unaware of underlying emotions that are seeking our attention. The more we repress them, our emotions, they don't go away, they just come back in a greater dysregulated form. So if, for example, we are reliant on fantasy as a way to compensate for um, the sadness after a breakup, rather than feeling the grief, we fantasize about a new relationship or get fixated on a new person that we're interested in, then what happens is we will be unhappy while we're fantasizing and the grief that we're postponing will become even more dysregulated during its repression. So it don't work is another way of summarizing it. Um, focused attention, on the other hand, reduces stress. Our amygdalas, the fight, flight, or freeze part of the midbrain, are set at needlessly high levels for predators that no longer exist. Our uh, midbrains are very way out of date. And so given our present level of safety in the world, we are constantly having amygdalas, which are uh, essentially hypervigilant parts of the brain looking out for being attacked, are set at settings that are associated with chronic stress. We can turn mild, uh, sort of judgmental looks from coworkers into all-out threats to our safety. We can take little notes left to us from neighbors into all-out attacks on our existence. I know because I hear these complaints all the time. So uh, essentially, focused attention has been shown as the most efficient way to settle and deactivate amygdalas. This was by yet another Harvard. It seems that Harvard's doing a lot of the work in this uh, by the name of Shelley Lazar. She showed that focused meditation over the course of four weeks, I think it was 20 minutes a day, uh, reduces amygdala activation. So, um, and finally, 
in life, if we don't know how to keep the mind focused on a task, we wind up making twice as many errors. And every time we allow the mind to wander at work or uh, during any important routine, it takes on average a half an hour, a half an hour to return your attention. So you might think, oh, I was just wandering away to Amazon for, it seemed like only a few minutes. I, I'll just take a little break. But actually, on average, we'll spend a half an hour away from the task before we finally return to it. So learning how to keep the mind from wandering is, um, from all perspectives, generally a very good idea. Now, before I give you the tools on how to do that, I should note that there are two cases where when mind wandering happens, it's actually um, a signal that there's something that we should investigate other than immediately develop uh, focused attention. When the mind jumps rapidly from one topic to another rather than a sustained fantasy or plan, but it's just anxiously jumping around, it's very often a sign of anxiety, which means an underlying fear or emotional activation is arising. And generally in that case, it's better to just bring your awareness into the body and find out what underlying somatic emotion is present. So in the case where you close, you're just unable to focus. Your mind is just constantly jumping about whether or not you're meditating. It's worthwhile investigating what emotion is present because that's almost invariably a sign of uh, emotion repression in the form of anxiety. So again, I'm just talking about the kind of Tonight we're just walking up, working on when the mind won't settle when we're trying to meditate or we're trying to give it a task. But if your mind is already jumping about, already moving about from one topic to another, it's a sign of anxiety and it means we should be investigating something underlying. Mind wandering to a static, repetitive image from the past is often the case that the emotional circuits of the right cingulate are trying to tell us or send us a message about a relationship or a relational disappointment. So if you bring back, or to a trauma, if you keep going back again to a single image, uh, no matter what you try to do, and it's the same image over and over and over again, you know when you get caught up in a mental loop on one image, one flashbulb ideation, then it's very often a sign of a traumatic event. And again, that's something that we want to investigate. So I'm not talking about those two situations. I'm talking about the general situation where we can focus on the television, we can stay present with our favorite TV show, we can stay present reading to our horror news items about Donald Trump, but the moment we try to focus the mind on something like the breath or meditation or something like that, it just starts spinning off into stories about the past or the future, narratives and stuff like that. So, uh, here are some tools that help to settle the mind, to diminish default mode network, to actually help you train your amygdala to settle down, and how you can actually train your mind when you're doing tasks like peeling the garlic to stay presently focused so that you'll have more happiness in life. So the first is when we can't focus the mind during a task, it means we haven't established in our intention a clear enough task. In other words, we didn't stop before we started peeling the garlic and say, okay, now I'm going to set my intention to peel the garlic and stay aware while I'm doing it. Simply setting an intention has been shown to help the mind stay subtle. Um, sometimes when in, we're doing meditation in general, we forget to simply set an intention about what our meditation at that point will be. Now I'm going to observe my breath. Now I'm going to recite a metaphrase. Now I'm going to keep a detailed visualization in my mind. I'm just going to visualize a static image. That's what in Tibetan meditations they do. So setting a task, having a very clear intention that you know what it is, noting it to yourself, 
And keeping that intention in mind, if possible, will help you from mind wandering because it's actually using the same part of the brain, the left dorsal lateral ventral medial, that wanders off. It's using it to actually set the intention. So you kind of fool in your brain into staying present. The second is to associate uh, your practice always with reward. Never, ever, ever ever use self-criticism or any self-disparagement or any self-judgment in cultivating a focused mind or a meditation practice. We actually in life, the tasks and things that we associate with self-criticism, guess what? Over time we tend to avoid doing those tasks. Why? Because we neurally associate those tasks with stress. Being self-critical doesn't feel good. It activates circuits that nobody wants to be present with. So when we're developing a focused meditation, always use positive reflections. When your mind has wandered, you notice it, just say, hey, that's great. I noticed that my mind was wandering and I'm now present, rather than what's the matter with me? Why can't I stay present? That simple change actually begins to associate your practice with positive circuits rather than the circuits that are associated with our parents screaming at us because we did something wrong as a child. Uh, so recognize our efforts. At the end of each meditation, reflect on its virtue. What are its virtues? Meditation is something that doesn't use up any of the Earth's resources. It doesn't harm any other beings. It's available free of charge. It makes us less antagonistic. It makes our relationships more uh, stable. And it's available without addicting you to anything. It's always available to you. So it's a blameless practice. So it's worth reflecting that, the, that you have something in your life that is not harming anybody, and yet it's actually making your life at least a little bit better every time we do it. So that's the second, reward, never criticism. The first, establish a clear task. Three is make the task more challenging. So sometimes if just observing the breath and the body isn't interesting enough, then start a counting task. One on the in, two on the out, three on the in, four on the out, five on the in. Or, if that's not enough, start adding more and more things to be aware of. So, while we're observing the breath, also be aware of the sounds in the room. Or, while we're aware of the breath, also be aware of the sensations in the hand. Or, be aware of a larger sensation of the breath in the body. Instead of just the chest, be aware of the movement of the belly up into the chest and then back down or change the area of the body that you observe breathing. Anything we can do to make the task more challenging will probably help us keep attention on it. One of the things I do is for a metaphrase when I'm doing that, I don't use a simple metaphrase, I use a very long one. Instead of may I be happy or may I be peaceful, I often use namo tasa bhagavato arahato samasam buddhasa buddhantaman sanna namasami sadhu sadhu sadhu, which is the uh, chant that Buddhist teachers give uh, to recognize the Buddha. Um, so you get the idea. Try to add some element of challenge into your practice. If you're listening to sounds, try to listen to the furthest away sound and the closest sound at once. If you're feeling body sensations, systematically move up the body at a very gradual pace. Four is add very strong sensations to the task. The more vivid the sensations, the more likely you'll be able to stick with them. So if you're observing body sensations, squeeze your toes, squeeze the fingers into the palms. If you are, on the other hand, doing the breath, try to breathe in and then hold your breath for five counts before you release it. Anything that actually makes the sensations even more apparent will make it more easy for you to actually stay present. So adding stronger sensations. And finally, if the breath 
I mean, if your mind keeps on wandering again and again and again, no matter what you do, then what we can do is switch to what's called choiceless awareness, which is allow your mind to wander, but just develop a noting or labeling practice for a while, knowing where your mind is, what you're thinking about. So at least now you're turning mind wandering into a task that you're observing in and of itself. So. I'm now going to lead you through a 2,500-year-old meditation called the Anapanasati meditation. And it is, Anapanasati means breathing in and breathing out. And sati means awareness. So Anapanasati means awareness of breathing in and out. And this meditation is very much associated with pretty much uh, four out of the last five uh, practices I just list, and that it uh, assigns a task or an intention, it makes it challenging, it makes the sensations more vivid, it keeps more in awareness for us to uh, uh, stay or keep present. So it's actually a great example of um, a single meditation that can do it all. Interestingly enough as well, this meditation, the Buddha said, was associated with becoming enlightened in and of itself. And it's associated with working with all the different experiences that we're acquainted with our life. It not only is relaxes the body, it relaxes feelings, it relaxes moods, and it helps us detach from thoughts. So it's a wonderful meditation. So let's start by just closing the eyes and finding a really comfortable seated position with that. Uh, if there's any effort that goes into your posture, just let it be keeping your head balanced above your shoulders rather than allowing your head to slouch, which undoes a lot of the... Uh, work that a good posture can provide. But everywhere else, don't see if you can just relax, let the limbs fall heavily off the body. And towards that end, let's take a nice full in-breath in the nose, and if you'd like, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears, and hold them up. And then, as we breathe out through the mouth, dropping the shoulders and gently pulling them back so you open up the chest. And let the shoulders and arms feel like they weigh a couple of tons, so they just fall off the shoulders. And then for the second in-breath through the nose, pulling in the belly as tight as it can get and just holding it taut for a few extra beats. And then as we breathe out, really softening the belly. So you get a nice, soft, relaxed belly. And then finally, squinching the muscles of the face, nice and taut, really pinched, ugly face. And then breathe out, relaxing the muscles in the face. And then just quickly scanning down the body, just relaxing anything that's associated with busyness and rushing around, so relaxing the muscles in the back of the neck, relaxing the buttocks and the legs, softening the palms of the hands, trying not to keep them in any tight position, just really relaxed. So, for our first intention, the Buddha starts off the meditation by just saying, knowing if I'm breathing in long, knowing if I'm breathing in short, knowing if I'm breathing out long, or knowing if I'm breathing out short. In other words, just get to know the sensations of the breath, whether they're long or short, especially whether each inhalation is long or short, 
and whether each exhalation is long or short. So if you find it difficult simply to stay with the breath, just add now that intention, knowing if I'm breathing in or out, and whether the qualities of the breath are short or long. Trying to have enough awareness that each breath has its own unique flavor or quality. Now, if anything else moves through the mind while you're aware of breathing, that's okay. So if you have a memory from previously in the day or a memory from something in the past or suddenly an image of something that's not happening or a worry. That's okay, so long as you're keeping your mind at least partially aware of breathing, which is what you're doing, you'll get the benefits of focused attention.
So for the next stages of this meditation, use your breath to become aware of the entire body and to relax the body. So what that means is, for example, starting at the top or the bottom or the abdomen, wherever you want, start someplace. Breathe in to that area, even if it's not an area associated with the breath, for example, the forehead. Just while you're breathing in, feel that area of the body and see if you can use the awareness of breathing to relax the muscles in the front of the forehead, above the eyes. Or you could breathe into the eyes, and as you breathe in, become aware. And then as you breathe out, softening the micro-muscles around the eyes. Breathing in, being aware. Breathing out, softening the muscles around the eyes. Breathing into the back of the head. As we breathe out, relaxing the muscle right at the top of the back of the neck. And then moving down the body. Breathing in, say, to the throat, and then relaxing, softening the throat with the out-breath. Out you could move around the body, breathing into areas that feel slightly contracted, and just with each in-breath become aware of the sensations, and with each out-breath, relax. So if you feel tension in the belly, breathing in, and then breathing out, softening.
So as we breathe in and out now, become aware of the feelings of comfort and discomfort that arise in the body and often have an emotional quality to them. So for instance, fear often tightens the belly, anxiety tightens the shoulders, loneliness or disconnection often tightens the muscles in the chest. Other emotions are visible in the muscles of the face. So whatever you're experiencing right now, find it in the body and use the breath to stay aware and then to begin to promote feelings of comfort. So for example, if you're feeling anxious, find where that anxiety is in the body. Locate where you're holding it, perhaps in the back or the shoulders or the throat or behind the eyes. And then use the breath to relax feelings that aren't comfortable to cultivate greater ease. If you're feeling tired, find where that tiredness is in the body and breathe in energetically into it. If you're feeling Board, find where sensations are present still and breathe in in such a way to become interested in what boredom in the body is like. So whatever you're feeling right now, find it in the body and use the breath to soften to be with it, to relax, to bring ease and comfort.
So for the next stage, letting go of surveying the body for feelings, and then bringing awareness to the mind, noticing what mood you're in. Is the mind, is your awareness spacious and open? Does it feel bright and clear? Does it feel heavy and tired? Does it feel claustrophobic, tight? The quality of your attention, does it feel like a tightly focused spotlight? Or does it feel like a well-lit stage, open and spacious? Is the mind filled with dominant moods like resentment or happiness or sadness or surprise or any other emotional state? jealousy, envy, loneliness, etc. So whatever state is present, use the breath as a way to both calm and cultivate some greater state of well-being in the mind. Now how we do that, if you feel that you're tired, try to take deeper in-breaths and hold them for longer. If you find the mind is jumpy, anxious, unsettled, take longer exhalations. And just see how you can now change the breath and what effect it has on the mood.
So for the very last stage, now bringing awareness to thoughts themselves, just watch different thoughts present themselves. And while you keep awareness of breathing in or out, still in your awareness, just notice how when we don't give our full attention to thoughts, they arise and they pass. It's only when we give them our full attention, when we climb inside them and let them whisk us away from the present, <coughs> that thoughts continue on and on and on. So keeping awareness of, am I breathing in or am I breathing out, just allowing whatever memories or plans or worries or concerns, any events, any fantasies, anything that wants now to come into your awareness, just let it. But always know whether you're breathing in or out. And then just see how our relationship with thoughts change if we don't give them our undivided attention. So you don't have to push anything out. There's nothing that needs to be kept out of your meditation. Whatever is present, just let it come in. Just add that single tack task of knowing whether you're breathing in or out and see how it changes your relationship. With all the different thoughts that appear. So as we reach the conclusion of the meditation, take a moment to reflect 
um, the benefit of your practice, even if it was difficult, you were struggling the entire time. Still, every time you sit and close your eyes and bring attention to an internal state away from worry, preoccupation, time wandering, simply that practice, Lazar's study shows that it builds positive states in the mind and it's a practice that doesn't cause any harm to any other being, it doesn't exploit anyone, it doesn't use up the world's resources, nor does it addict you to anything. So it's worth celebrating your practice. When it comes time to open your eyes, try to do it slowly, don't look around the room at first, just integrate sight into awareness of the breath, the body, moods, 